Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Ideas Center of the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Christopher Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment, recording from our studio in Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Shanti Kalathal, Senior Director of NED's International Forum for Democratic Studies. It seems like everywhere you turn these days, we're hearing more and more about the Chinese government's pledges to invest in big infrastructure, energy, telecommunications, and technology-driven development projects around the world. Many of these investment activities have been announced under the banner of China's Belt and Road Initiative, which we've also heard referenced over the years as New Silk Road and One Belt, One Road. Shanti, why have there been so many different names over the years for this initiative? Well, Chris, it's now been five years since the official launch of the Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI. Originally, it was promoted as a way to connect China across Central Asia all the way to Europe through a series of transportation and infrastructure linkages. Over time, this vision seems to have expanded to encompass countries far beyond these regions, with more than 65 countries now signing on to BRI agreements of various forms. More recently, Investigative reports have delved into some of the higher-profile Belt and Road projects, which have begun to trigger an apparent backlash and increased criticism of the terms under which these projects have been arranged between the Chinese government and national governments. The Chinese government seems to be trying to adapt how they frame the Belt and Road Initiative as a result. Here to help us better understand the evolution of China's Belt and Road is our featured guest, Nadej Roland, Senior Fellow for Political and Security Affairs at the National Bureau of Asian Research and author of the book, China's Eurasian Century, Political and Strategic Implications of the Belt and Road Initiative. Nadej, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So I think it might be helpful to start with a little bit of background on what spurred you to investigate this project to begin with. You were looking at this long before it burst onto the scene as a hot topic. What about it piqued your interest, and um, what, you know, how did this project itself, the Belt and Road Initiative, get started? So what spurred me to look at this um, project by the Chinese authorities, um, I started to look at it very carefully in 2014 uh, when I first came to the U.S. Um, it seemed back then as it was um, something very important from Beijing's perspective, but not very well known uh, or understood in the commentaries uh, that I could find um, either in the media or in the you know, um, academic um, publications. So really what, uh, what started uh, my own interest was more to understand what Beijing wanted to do with the Belt and Road. Um, back then, 2014, it was just the beginning. Um, people were mostly skeptical about it. Um, will China be able to reconnect Eurasia? Those projects are too big, too expensive. Um, is this an empty label? Um, isn't it just the uh, the usual Chinese um, uh, expansion um, towards its neighborhood? Um, so many questions that came with answers that didn't really satisfy me. Uh, I wanted to know what were the drivers. Uh, and for that, um, I spent almost two years uh, reading a lot of what the Chinese experts uh, were writing about Belt and Road. I went to China several times 
to have discussions uh, with um, experts from universities, think tanks, research centers, but also government officials, um, people in banks, to try to understand uh, what Belt and Road was all about. And in the meantime, as you and others have started to shine a greater light on the Belt and Road Initiative, it's come under more scrutiny. Um, how do you see the, the pushback to the BRI taking shape? Well, as Shanti said, um, now it's the, it's uh, it's been five years since uh, Xi Jinping launched the initiative, uh, which back then was not really called an initiative. It was. Uh, um, it was presented in two different uh, speeches, um, one in Kazakhstan and the other one in Indonesia. So very probably more um, n- more focused on China's own continental and maritime neighborhood. Um, and since then, there's uh, there's been there's been many projects that have been launched. Others that were launched before 2013 that now have the label Belt and Road on on them. Um, And as China has deployed so much effort uh, diplomatically, economically, financially, um, uh, in really all the different directions, it's kind of circular now. It's not just uh, through Eurasia or through the Indian Ocean. It's, It's really... Um, expanded um, through the Arctic, uh, towards Africa, towards uh, South uh, America, towards Oceania. So it's it's really a global initiative now. Well, of course, um, the reactions from these countries have been a little bit different. Some of them have uh, welcomed it from the beginning and still do welcome it because they see they see it as an opportunity for economic development. Um, others have first welcomed it and then now are starting to to emit some doubts about the conditions that China has been imposing in terms of uh, uh, reimbursement of the loans or the, uh, the conditions or other conditions that were not really clear in the beginning that start to emerge now. Uh, so there are some examples of pushback um, against the initiative uh, that have occurred in the last few months. Um, Pakistan, Malaysia, Nepal, just to name a few. Um, at the same time, though, um, China still continues to make progress and to expand the partners and partnerships that he, uh, that uh, it has built um, uh, around the Belt and Road Initiative. There are MOUs that are signed almost on a daily basis, um, to to um, to implement or to or to frame the cooperation between China and and some countries. I'm thinking here of Africa. Um, there's a, a MOU that has been signed a couple of days ago um, or a few weeks ago uh, with the government of Victoria in in Australia. So there's a pushback, but at the same time, there's progress being made. And maybe you can say a little bit more about the the case in Victoria. My understanding is that part of the reason that was controversial is because the local authorities um, essentially kept the conditions of the agreement secret. Is that correct? That's correct. The government of Australia um, didn't endorse the Belt and Road Initiative. Officially, they're not against, but they're not for it either. They haven't endorsed it officially. Um, But um, what China is doing is not um, just going to 
central governments. They don't just negotiate with the central governments. More and more what you see is a sort of localization of China's diplomacy. Uh, and, and what happened in Victoria is exactly that. Uh, they go to local governments, uh, municipalities, that maybe are not as knowledgeable, um, maybe don't have the political, economical, uh, or geopolitical framework uh, to understand uh, what China wants of them. And so um, they they signed this agreement, and yes, it's secret. They refuse to publish it. And I'm not sure whether it's because of something that China told them to do, like an agreement that they had with the Chinese authorities that this agreement would re remain secret, um, or is it something that they decided uh, um, for themselves? I'm, I'm not clear about what happened. And in the short period since the agreement's uh, conditions came to light, or the inability of to bring, bring them to light, um, it's really been journalists and some of the leading figures in Australia who've been talking about this. How does this sort of thing play out in a setting where there isn't as much uh, either civil society or the sort of policy expertise to talk about some of these big deals? Yeah, well, that's a very good question because in, in cases where um, the deals with, with China have come to the surface and to the public knowledge, it's thanks to the, to the work of these journalists and, and civil society groups um, that have... Uh, Manage to, to bring knowledge to the broader public. And that's very important because, again, uh, the, the way China works, usually the Chinese authorities work, is going directly to the elite level and they don't involve the local populations or civil society within their deals. So, yeah, and in, other, in, in, in countries where they don't have that network or that... Uh, uh, fabric, um, it's it's much more difficult to report. Let me um, let me refer back to a blog post that you wrote for our Power 3.0 blog about the phrase "community of common destiny," which was being used at the time to describe, I suppose, China's vision of a win-win scenario mm. for everybody involved with the Belt and Road. I've noticed that in the intervening period. They've dropped that phrase, largely the English translation of the phrase, and are now using in the English translation community of common future. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that they did that? And what does that tell us about what they're trying to project? Uh, yeah, it's um, it's one of my favorite topics. <laughs> Thank you for bringing it up. Um, it's the same with Belt and Road, really. The, the term in Chinese hasn't changed. It's still Lu. It's one belt and one road. Um, it's just that China's discourse is, um, is twofold. There's one internal in Chinese language for domestic consumption, and there's one for the outside world that goes through a filter of propaganda. And so um, the way China, the Chinese authorities frame uh, those big concepts for external purposes, one of my friends calls that the exoprop, it's the external propaganda purpose. I think this is a very appropriate term. Um, <clears throat> is It's meant for um, foreign consumption. And so community of common destiny might have sound maybe so they launched this out outside 
and maybe then they reassess how it's um, they assess about how it's been welcomed by foreign audiences, and then they bring that back to Beijing, and you know people don't really understand what you mean, or people are reluctant; they don't really see what common destiny is all about. So now it has it has been uh, repackaged into this shared future. Maybe the shared future is a better concept that foreigners can accept. Um, it's, I don't know. Uh, I think this is why they, they changed it. It's just to make sure um, that foreign consumption, that the, that the foreign, con uh, sorry, that the foreign consumers understand it better. You know, I, I noticed in your book that you talk about um, what you saw as the Chinese authorities' um, emphasis on how they would make sure that Belt and Road could be accepted more easily. And strategic communication was a part of that. And th But then you contrast that with these numerous jingles and really ham-handed attempts to popularize Belt and Road. Uh, you know, you can find any of them quite easily if you do a quick search for Belt and Road rap video, for instance. <laughs> um, so, you know, do you have a sense that they're learning from these efforts, that your example of shifting from common destiny to shared future implies some kind of sophistication around the messaging, but yet when you look at the vast majority of what's being put out there, it still seems not that sophisticated. Um, you know, is it likely that they'll keep refining their approach and that that will prove effective in the end? Uh, yeah, I, I'm struggling with that. It's It's a very interesting question, and I haven't... Um, spend enough time um, looking at it very, very carefully and in, in detail and see whether there is an adaptation and, and why and when this adaptation uh, happens. But um, I think there is. I think um, because of the, um, the constant reassessment or assessment of the situation, um, Things go back to Beijing, they get studied, uh, there's some feedback, and then there's some readjustment uh, being done. And this is also what we see, not just in the uh, strategic me messaging on, or, or the external propaganda, but also in the way that, for example, reacting to, um, to the pushback that the authorities start to perceive. Uh, there is also an adjustment um, of the discourse um, of the, how should I put it, of the the external um, image that China wants to um, project outside, um, you know, discussing more with with the countries and saying, yes, yeah, of course we can we can readjust, we can adapt our deals. So there's a um, um, there is I think there is an adaptation and. Um, whether it is efficient, um, I'm, I'm not so sure. We'll have to look in the longer term to see whether it's appropriate and efficient. Um, but the, I think the effort is there, yes. And it's interesting that public opinion management and public opinion guidance, those are both um, domestic issues that the party is very not just aware of, but is always prioritized. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not as though they're not thinking about these things. That's very true, yes. And I think um, we, sometimes when you look at China from the outside, you think that it's very um, congealed or, um, or very 
structured and frozen. But in reality, um, the party takes the pulse constantly of its own population, not through opinion polls or or participative democracy, uh, but through the control of the social media and the communication of their population. So they know what people are talking about, what their worries are, um, and they can adjust their own uh, their own discourse uh, to the expectations of their population. And I think this training that they have from controlling the domestic uh, public sphere is now put to good use also um, to, to study and examine uh, the, the, the public opinions of, of the outside world. And when I say public opinions, maybe not just the societies, but mostly the political elites who are the decision makers. And on the broader theme of how um, ideas and information and opinions work, one portion of the BRI is what's sometimes called the digital Silk Road. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit about how we should understand how that's evolved and where it's heading. Um, the digital Silk Road is, um, it's been a concept that's been, uh, um, present from the very beginning of the launch of, of Belt and Road Initiative. Um, so it's um, it overlaps uh, with China's Internet Plus strategy. Um, so it encompasses a lot of tools uh, that include uh, fiber optic networks, um, the, the Beidou satellite constellation, um, the e-commerce, so everything digital, everything um, that is related to the IT. So it's not just the physical infrastructure of those you know, cables and, uh, and satellite constellations that are supposed to cover the entire region. It's also the information that goes through these networks. And I think here, too, um, China deploys not just uh, its infrastructure, but also its ideas, uh, its own norms, um, its own model, in a way. Um, there's a lot of media cooperation, and I know that Shanti has done a lot of work on, on that topic uh, from China and, and developing world countries on, um, on media cooperation that go through uh, those networks, basically. This is... It's fascinating because um, the connections that are being made are not just through, uh, through cables. They are also through humans, journalists, uh, that China is training in China um, to let them, uh, as it's proposed in the programs, better understand China. And so they will go back to their countries with a better understanding of China, sometimes also with some material, uh, some... Uh, some cameras or microphones, and also with some content uh, that has been produced by the Central Propaganda Department in Beijing and that will be used by those journalists uh, back home. So this is, for me, Digital Silk Road, again, is not just the, the, the material, physical infrastructure. It's everything that goes with it uh, in terms of information, uh, broadcasting, 
and, and diffusion. And you've alluded to the sort of training and engagement and network building at the human level that um, has really gotten insufficient attention in many ways, and it transcends the journalistic realm. It also includes political party representatives from a wide range of countries around the world and educators and academics. Yeah. Um, but this is a part of the bigger picture. But before we leave the the digital theme, I'd like to ask in this context, another issue that's gotten an enormous amount of attention in the recent past is what's essentially the modern authoritarian surveillance state that's developed in Xinjiang. And so when we take into account the sort of um, deep uh, technical investments and um, material investments that are being made there in the under this larger context of um, control of information and people. How should we think about that in the context of this outward-facing uh, digital Silk Road initiative? The I think that the 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 example of what's going on in Xinjiang right now um, is very telling about how the party uh, thinks they can reform the thinking of their population. So again, it's a sort of transformation or brainwashing um, that has not been seen since the Cultural Revolution at a scale that is um, unseen uh, since the worst time of our contemporary history. Um, the techniques that China, uh, that the PRC has developed over the years uh, to control its own population and the human beings um, can be attractive and appealing to other authoritarian countries um, because of this civilian system that's highly technologized or highly sophisticated uh, in terms of the, again, of the technologies that are being used, but with that allow for a control, a level of control that hasn't been seen or even dreamed of by any authoritarian or I would say even totalitarian country in the world before. Um, so I'm not sure whether uh, what's going on in Xinjiang with the with the incarceration, do you say that in English, in English incarceration of uh, millions of their own population in, in camps to re-educate them, uh, to, to shift their brains, uh, to eradicate their identity uh, is exportable. Um, it, it might be, it's, it might be, uh, I don't know. Um, what I can see though is that some authoritarian countries are very interested in, in other methods of control, um, censorship, um, control again of communications um, that can allow them to, um, I'm not sure that the other countries are willing to go as far as transforming the human as the PRC wants to do now for their own Muslim population in Xinjiang. Uh, but certainly to exert a better control about, about what, they're, what they're saying, what they're thinking, and then to be able to eradicate some dissent uh, by controlling those communications. Yes, certainly so. So let me uh, broaden out the focus a little bit. Uh, you know, we can acknowledge that 
just about everybody seems to have an opinion about the Belt Road Initiative these days, having a discussion about it. We hear a lot of terms like debt trap diplomacy or China's focused on resource extraction or maybe on the flip side, actually, this is all much ado about nothing, Mm. as you've mentioned earlier. So given that everybody's talking about it now, what, in your view, do most commentators still get wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that really what matters more when you look at Belt and Road is not so much the physical the, the physical infrastructure or the physical manifestation of the Belt and Road. So it's not about the roads and the railways. It's about these intangible things, intangible manifestations of Belt and Road. So it's more about the what they call people-to-people exchanges. What does it mean exactly? Well, it means things that we described together a while ago, you know, elite capture, formation of future elites, uh, penetration of universities, changing of the minds of the journalists. I think this is really the most important of Belt and Road. It's not just, it's not the investment. Investment are in a way just a tool or a way to open doors or to entice uh, other parties to, to cooperate with China. The real, the real heart of, of the Belt and Road is the creation of this community of common destiny. And that's something intangible, but that's something also that is the objective that has been set for BRI. It's the creation of this community around China that respects uh, China's interests, uh, doesn't criticize the regime, doesn't criticize China's or Beijing's activities, um, and abides uh, by China's rules. So now we'll have the segment of the discussion where we talk about things we're reading or things we might recommend. Uh, For my part, I've read The Invention of Russia from Gorbachev's Freedom to Putin's War, written by Arkady Ostrovsky. And Ostrovsky does really a terrific job of explaining the evolution of information and media in Russia and how television in particular has forged the modern authoritarian state under Vladimir Putin. Nadezh, what are you reading at the moment? Um, Well, in, in, in kind of continuing on the same theme of what this community of shared future might look like. Um, I'm, I'm reading uh, Zhao Tingyang's uh, book on the Tianxia, uh, the all under heaven system. Uh, he's a political philosopher and he uh, has, I, I read it in its French translation because it's easier for me because it's very dense. Um, so it's the, how would the world, it's an, it's a utopian description of what would the world look like um, without the nation state. That's very interesting. Hmm. And uh, I'm reading a report by Ted Pacone of the Brookings Institution called China's Long Game on Human Rights at the United Nations. Mm-hmm. Um, it came out a little while ago, and in the context of uh, the Universal Periodic Review at the UN, I really wanted to understand how China's shaping the international order by um, actively participating in shaping the international human rights system. So the report really gets at that aspect. Well, we've reached the end of our time today, but I'd like to thank Nadezh Rolan for joining us on our Power 3.0 podcast, and uh, I hope you'll be able to come back soon. Well, thank you very much for having me. This was fun. 
for a more in-depth look at the origins, drivers, and component pieces of China's Belt and Road Initiative, you can read Nadezh Roland's book, China's Eurasian Century, Political and Strategic Implications of the Belt and Road Initiative. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence, where you can also find an excellent contribution by Nadezh examining China's vision for a community of common destiny. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter. Look for the handle at ThinkDemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoy today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, producer Jessica Ludwig, and our editing and sound engineer, Rochelle Faust. I'm Shanti Kalethal with Chris Walker and Nadej Rolan. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on the evolution of China's Belt and Road, and hope you'll join us for future Power 3.0 podcasts. <laughs>